You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. One of the things I love about our church um, is that the gospel is presented in many different ways each Sunday. It's not only the sermon, but it's also in the music, and it's in um, what we do as we gather around the table. And that's always true. Every week, the gospel is presented to us in multiple ways. As we hear the word of God read, and as we respond to that um, in the psalm. And I would remind you of that in particular this week, because um, if something happens, if you tune out what I'm saying here, um, if you kind of zone out and have trouble paying attention as I'm talking, just go back and read those first two songs that we sang. Um, And pretty much that has the gospel directly in it uh, between those two songs. And and it's just presented really clearly in those songs. Just remind you of that this morning. Um, So it seems like much of modern media, when you're looking at news, depending, and this goes regardless of what kind of sources you look, So much of modern media is designed to produce fear and anger in the way that the news is presented. It's like they've taken the words of Yoda and his warning against the dark side and turned it into a marketing strategy. Because fear leads to anger, and anger leads to hate, and hate leads to engagement and clicks and monetization of online news sources so that they can get more and more money because you're so angry and upset that you're going to keep on clicking and commenting and you're going to get more and more out of it. And so when we engage with stories in the media and in news, we have to be careful and aware of this emotional manipulation that goes on. And this isn't just a question of whether the news is factual or not. It's with what kind of stories are chosen to present, the way that they frame the headline, what they talk about, what they don't talk about. All of it is designed in a way that kind of produces this sense of fear and anger, and and it wants you to engage in that. So we have to be careful about the ways that our emotions are manipulated when we go to the news and recognize that there are so many ways in which that is designed to inflame emotions that do not lead us towards love of our neighbor, and they do not lead us towards trust in God. And yet, I say this, and at the same time, there are things that happen in this world that we learn about, that we see about, that we read about or hear about, that are worthy of anger. There are injustices that happen And the answer to the fact that we're being manipulated in our emotions is not just to sort of turn into this emotionless blank slate where we just look at everything and we go, okay, well then, since they want me to feel angry, I'm just never going to feel anger. Because there are things that are wrong in this world. There are things when you read the prophets and God looks and speaks to his own people, he reminds them that he is angry about the things that they are doing. He's angry about the way that they are exploiting the poor, the lack of justice that they do. He's angry that they are not following his laws. One such story from a few years ago um, is the story of Martin Shkrell. Some of you probably recognize that name. He, He was a hedge fund manager who became very wealthy, who then started a pharmaceutical company. 
And he started this phar pharmaceutical company that was known as Turing Pharmaceuticals. Its name has since changed to probably separate itself from, from him. Um, but it was in the news in about 2015 because it wasn't a pharmaceutical company that had done a lot of research and invested a lot in like developing new drugs. As they started up, they bought the rights to some existing drugs. And they thought they're going to manufacture and sell and market these existing drugs. And one of them was a drug that is an antiparasitic drug that is used for from ver some very specific cases in hospitals. It's not a super widespread drug that like is needed all the time, but when it is needed, it's at, it saves people's lives. They have to have it. It was like the best thing to use, the standard of treatment for those people. And when he bought the, the rights to that drug, they sold the drug for $13.50 per tablet so that somebody could go through an entire regimen of the drug and they could afford it. And immediately after he bought the rights to the drug, they raised the price from $13.50 a tablet to $750 a tablet. And this was so bad that, of course, nobody, even the news, widespread, they picked up on just how absolutely exploitive this behavior was. To take something that somebody's life depends on it so they can't just turn it down, and, and then to make it so that it's going to cost them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, in order to be able to get the appropriate regimen to save their life. And he knew that they couldn't just say no, and he was exploiting them, taking the most that he possibly could away from people. Came up with all sorts of excuses about why this wasn't unethical, but the heart of it, they said, no, this is clearly just exploitation. You didn't even develop the drug. You don't have the cost of research excuse to use. You just are extorting people. And it's good and right to be angry about things like that when they happen. And of course, this story, while extreme, is just a small picture of greater exploitation that goes on in, in really for the poor everywhere, but in the pharmaceutical industry in particular, in our country. Um, there was a study done by the Rand Corporation, no association with me, actually. Um, it was talking about the price of insulin, because this is one that gets talked about a lot, because there are people who depend upon that. And the fact that um, the price in the United States is nearly 10 times more than in pretty much any other developed country for insulin, for the exact same product. So if you buy a bottle of insulin in the United States, um, this was back in like 2018, I'm not sure how the prices have changed, but basically a bottle of it, a vial, would cost about $100. If you like walked across the border and bought the same thing in Canada, the list price was $12. And of course, the excuse that they use with all of this is that, well, everybody has insurance, they bargain, they don't actually pay that price. Um, they use all sorts of things like that, but the point is that the pricing is really exploitive. They're choosing what they can to maximize profits. And I tell you these stories and hopefully allow you to feel some of the righteous anger that goes along with that exploitation so that you can understand a little bit better how people in the first century felt about tax collectors. Our story from the gospel today said that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And when we think of tax collectors in our culture, sure, 
most of us don't really like having to pay a big tax bill at the end of the year. We don't like how much of our paycheck and how much of our money goes towards taxes. But we kind of see it as the inevitable result of a bureaucratic process. There's not any necessarily one particular person that we're angry at. We understand that it's a whole government system. And we look at it and we, we argue and we vote over how much we should be paying with taxes. But we still see it as ultimately taxes are going to a cause where they're going to our government and it is something that is more or less, we know that they're necessary to some degree. The question is just sort of, how much should we pay? And we get angry maybe at the system, but not at people. But when you look at the way that taxes were collected for Rome in the first century, because even though this was happening in Israel, this is happening in Judea, um, the story takes place there. He's a Roman tax collector. He's collecting for a foreign power, which immediately is a strike against him. You have an occupying force collecting taxes from your people, and you're still paying taxes to some of your, to the temple and to the local government. You're still giving your tithes, but now you've got money that you've got to give to this occupying force. So strike against you, because you're seen, if you're a Jew that is collecting taxes, as Zacchaeus was, you're seen as a traitor to your people to even be collecting taxes at all. But to understand even more the way that taxes were collected, Rome was huge. And they didn't have the benefit of databases and Excel spreadsheets and instant transmission of information to be able to figure out what's the right amount of taxes to collect for any given region. So the way that they figured around that we don't have to actually go try to figure out for any region what the right amount of taxes to collect is, is that for their tariffs and taxes on goods and trade and things like that, they would open things up to an auction. And they would say, okay, people who want to be tax collectors, We'll take bids on how much tax you think you can collect from the people. And by the way, when you collect tax for us, you get to then set the actual rates of the tax when you win the bid. And we know that you're going to collect more than the actual rate that you're giving to us because you're going to collect enough to make a tidy little profit on the side. So when we think of the way that people felt towards tax collectors, I think that thinking of them as the way that we think about people who are exploitive in the pharmaceutical industry, because they're going in and they're setting the rate at the maximum that they can get people to pay. And then they're getting the might of the Roman legions behind them to help them actually enforce that they have to collect those taxes. So now they have the armies of Rome helping them collect those taxes. So it's not like somebody can say, that's too much, I can't pay it. They're taking advantage of people getting as much as they can. And then Zacchaeus is wealthy, as most of the tax collectors were, which means that they've set the rate at what they've said they can give to Rome, and then they're collecting more than that so that they can lie in their own pockets and have plenty of money for themselves. And so, when we see in the story that we heard in our gospel today that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy, the way that we can hear that is not just someone who is disliked because of their role in society and their bureaucratic function. He was one of the rich oppressors, one of the people who is oftentimes declaimed in the prophets, told that they are doing injustice, that God's righteous anger 
rises up against them. But Zacchaeus, despite the role that he had taken on, despite what he had done, despite the injustice that he had done, heard about Jesus and was curious. The story doesn't tell us exactly what he heard, why he was curious. We know from the other stories that Luke told, tells that actually Jesus had gone around to those who were seen as sinners. And he had given them mercy when it was unexpected. But mostly these were people who were the poor, the sort of the cast-offs, the people that you would think would be below the level of society, not the wealthy and the rich. In fact, just before this story, we have the rich young ruler, where the rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and basically said, what do I need to do to be saved? And he talked about the law, and then he said, you have to go give away your money. And he walked away sad because he was very wealthy. But Jesus had done healings to lepers, he walked up and showed mercy to women caught in the act of adultery. He saw women who perhaps had found themselves cast into prostitution in order to try to make ends meet, and he showed mercy upon them, and his reputation went ahead of him as this great teacher and this man of grace and mercy. And Zacchaeus, there is something in him that was curious about that. Something that was drawn. I want to see this man. And as the story unfolds, you can begin to understand a little bit of what's going on by the way that Zacchaeus reacts. What was going on in his heart is he had a recognition that he needed mercy, that he needed grace. And there's this wondering that is perhaps beginning in his mind as he showed it to those other people. Could he possibly be someone that would show it to me? So he runs ahead of the crowd because Zacchaeus is short. Uh, many of us know the Sunday school song that begins, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. That part's actually biblical. He's a small man. He can't see over the crowds. They don't like him, so they're not going to make a way for him. So he runs ahead and he climbs up into a sycamore tree. And um, the sycamore tree uh, is a tree that had really broad limbs that extended horizontally. Um, I've looked at pictures of it. It's like the perfect climbing tree where it's a really easy tree to get up into. And then he could probably shimmy out on one of the limbs. And it also had big, broad leaves. And so there's people, as you're looking at commentaries about this, that it doesn't say this, but there might be this element of Zacchaeus is also trying to kind of remain hidden a little bit. That he wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't necessarily, he's not sure that he wants to be seen because he doesn't know what Jesus is going to do with him if he sees him. So he just wants to see the man. He gets up over the crowds and Jesus walks along and Jesus spots him in this tree and sees him and he says, Zacchaeus. You need to come down from that tree because I must stay in your house today. And the response of everyone who sees this, as it happens more than once in Jesus' ministry, the response of everyone who sees Jesus, hears Jesus call out to Zacchaeus, they grumble. They say, does, does he know who this man is? 
Like, it's bad enough that he hangs out with the low dregs of society, but I can kind of see God's mercy upon them. If you look back through the prophets, you can see that God has concern and care for the poor. And so there might be a way in which they could understand that I can see him lifting up somebody who was poor and showing mercy upon them. Even though that is scandalous because he's doing it in a way that doesn't fit within the social understanding of his role as a respected rabbi. But now he's showing mercy to one who was one of the rich oppressors. And the scandal is even greater that he would show mercy and grace to Zacchaeus. This is the gospel. The grace that God shows is scandalous. Because everyone upon whom Jesus shows mercy is a sinner. None is righteous, no, not one. And yet Jesus shows mercy and grace upon them. Zacchaeus was delighted. This is key to understanding why he received God's mercy. He was so excited just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. He knew his need for mercy. He was curious and wondered. And then when Jesus called to him, it, there's the, the parallel in the text is interesting because it says that Jesus says, um, come down from the tree, hurry and come down because I must stay at your house. And it says, so he hurried and came down. And so as soon as he receives a command from Jesus, as soon as Jesus tells him to do something, Jesus reaches out and says, hurry and come down. And Zacchaeus' immediate response is, okay, I'm going to obey this man. I'm going to do exactly what he asks me to. I'm going to hurry and come down. And he does exactly what Jesus asks him. And he welcomes him joyfully. And then as the people are looking on, we don't know exactly when the rest of the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus took place, whether it took place right there underneath that tree or whether it took place when he got further along into his home. But there's this, it records that Zacchaeus says to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to give away my money. I'm going to give away half of it immediately to the poor. And then I'm going to take everybody who I have defrauded Anyone who I cheated, that I collected more than I should have, I'm going to go back and I'm going to give them four times what I took, which was what was recommended in the law at that time of Israel, that if somebody had cheated a neighbor that they were supposed to pay back four times, so they're making restitution for what they've done. And Zacchaeus demonstrated true repentance it wasn't just words or curiosity, because rich people came to Jesus before and were turned away. What Zacchaeus had was a desire to actually follow and obey Jesus as Lord, that as soon as Jesus gave a command, he would obey him. He would do whatever he said. And then he noticed and recognized his own sin, and he said, I'm not going to turn away from this. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to walk away from my sin and I'm going to make it right what I have done. And so Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Here is a true son of Abraham. One who recognizes and obeys me. One 
who repents and understands the meaning of repentance, to turn away from his sin, to walk in a different way of life. And the gospel for every single person is nothing more and nothing less than it was for Zacchaeus. The good news is that every person comes to God the same way. Jesus is calling you. Jesus has called you. Will you obey Him? Will you recognize His authority? Will you follow Him as Lord? Even if that means leaving behind the way that things were. If you followed Jesus many years ago, will you still do it? Because He's still calling you. Will you turn from all that you put above Him and instead say, I will follow Him. I will obey Him because Jesus is Lord. Do you recognize that you come to Him as one who desperately needs mercy and grace? That whether you're one of the poor that Jesus has, has lifted up from the mire or whether you're one of the rich, you come to Jesus on the same terms. That there is nothing you bring that you have to offer Him, to give to Him, that makes you worthy of his acceptance. And yet Jesus comes and he holds out his hand and he offers mercy and grace the same, whether it's to the rich or to the poor. You understand that you are called to live a life of repentance. That it's not enough to say, I follow Jesus as Lord and then to remain in your sin. None of us will be perfect we cannot use that as an excuse to just remain in our sin. Zacchaeus recognized and gave name to it. He recognized the way that money and wealth and acquiring wealth had, had been what controlled his life. And he said, I will stop and I will leave this behind. And I'm not just going to give that as empty words. I'm going to open up my pocketbook here and say, this is the thing that has been my Lord. This is what dictated the way I live my life. And I'm going to give it away. Are you willing to do that with the things that draw you instead of Jesus? To not just have words to say, yeah, I know that Jesus is better than that, but I'm still going to kind of hold on to it. Are you willing to go to those whom you have injured in the pursuit of sin and make things right? God's scandalous grace is what draws us to himself. God's scandalous grace, the mercy that he shows when we are undeserving, changes everything about the way that we come and gather around the table. Every week I say that we come and gather around the table, but we do it because of the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the hope that we have in him. And that hope is exactly this grace that we are proclaiming again and again and again that we were in our sins and yet God has saved us, that we were not a people and yet he has made us a people, that we were in death and now we're in life. And it's not because of anything that you have done or could do or will do. It is because Jesus has called you. 
And he gives you the chance to say yes, to hurry and come down. And because we all come to the table because of the same scandalous grace, it means that when we gather in this place, we do so in humility. We pray a prayer of humble access most Sundays, where we are reminded that it is not on our own merit that we come. By our own merit, we don't deserve even the crumbs from underneath the table, but that we come because of what Jesus has done for us. And that dictates the reason and the way that we come around the table. When we gather in this room, in this space, we are all of us equal here. We are sinners in need of mercy and grace. And this needs to be evident in our community in very real ways. That the kindness that we show to one another the care that we give to one another is because we have been shown grace and mercy. And we know that that is why we are gathered around this table. Because we all have a story of God's grace. This is the story that dictates our lives. As we leave this place and we go, there are so many different things, competing narratives that want us to say, like, this is what your story is really about. This is what your identity is really about in the clothes that you wear, in the things that you buy, in the neighborhood that you live in. Your identities in your sexual identity or in your political affiliation or your voting or your not voting or whatever. But the centerpiece of all of our stories is the same theme of grace. And I know that it's the centerpiece of your story because you're here right now today. And so I know Jesus has called you. He said, come here. Come down. I want to stay in your house. I want to stay in your heart. Will you listen to that voice? Will you obey? Will you remember that that is your story, that your story is one of God's grace and what He has done for you? And then will you remember when you go out to this place, you can share that story with others. That when someone wrongs you, when they hurt you, when they are a rich oppressor upon you, that that may be a person who needs to hear about Jesus. That they need to become curious because of the way that you respond is not one where you lash out in anger, but that you show mercy and kindness and love. Knowing that nobody is beyond the call of Jesus. Will you live lives that reject the message of fear that permeates our society and instead put your confidence and trust in God? In a way that reminds people why why are you so, why are you not afraid? 
And the answer can be because I've seen this man. I've seen grace and mercy. And I have true hope and trust. Will you welcome sinners to dine around your table as Jesus went and sat around the table of sinners? Will you recognize that that hospitality that Jesus showed and received was part of the scandal. But it was a scandal that drew people to him because they said, what's different here? Why does this man go and eat with sinners? Why does he dine with tax collectors? This question that permeated his entire ministry, why is he doing this? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Why does he eat with them? Why does he forgive them? Why does he heal them? Why does he touch the lepers? It's this radical hospitality that reminds people that they are gathered there at God's grace. Will you do that for others too? Will you share that message? Will you live a life that makes people ask those questions about Jesus and who he is? This is our call as the people of God. Our call is both to receive the scandalous grace of God, to come to him recognizing that our hands are empty, that we can do nothing but receive, but then also to carry forth that message of scandalous grace. To be reminded that there are no limits to it. And that Jesus is calling even the tax collector up in the tree and saying, come and hurry down because I need to stay at your house. Carry that message forward. Live your life and speak your words so that those around you hear and know of the scandal of grace. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.